What's up, Military Millionaires? I'm your host, David Perret, and today we are on the horn with Joe Riley, the founder of Patriot Family Homes, which is, uh, well, we're going to talk about all of those things, but we're going to talk short-term rentals and service members, and we're going to talk through Joe's story. And, uh, you know, they had reached out to me about having Joe on the podcast, and I was like, yeah, okay, cool. Um, Tell me a little bit more about their information. And then I realized that one of my very, very, very good friends, Mr. Craig Holm, uh, is his wife works with the company and he's going to skill bridge with them. And I was like, oh, OK, cool. You're good. Consider it vetted. And uh, so here we are. So, uh, Mike, I know you're going to listen to this podcast. And if this podcast is terrible, it's all your fault. So um, <laughs> no, just kidding. Joe, welcome to the show, brother. Welcome to the Military Millionaire Podcast, where we teach service members, veterans and their families how to build wealth through personal finance, entrepreneurship and real estate investing. I'm your host, David Perret, and together with my co-host, Alex Felice, we're here to be your no BS guides along the most important mission you'll ever embark on, your finances. Vehicle one, you're clear to depart friendly lines. Roger, Vic one, Oscar Mike. Hey guys, if you're looking to take your investing, business, life, or just yourself to the next level, then I have something for you. The War Room Real Estate Military Mastermind Group is a mastermind group that meets weekly in small groups of five to six people to help you hold yourself accountable and really experience that growth. But we also have a monthly guest speaker that we bring in, and we've had guest speakers that talk about mindfulness, taxes, we're bringing in somebody to talk about marketing. We bring in very specific topics that will adhere to very broad, any any kind of real estate investing or investing or entrepreneurship that you want to do, and we'll really help you out. We let you ask these speakers questions and get very personal with them. And then back to the small groups, weekly accountability for what you're trying to achieve and just being surrounded by like-minded people. And they say your network is your net worth. I know that's an overused phrase, but I recommend that you check it out. So just shoot an email to wrmastermind at gmail.com. Once again, that's wrmastermind at gmail.com. And we'll send you some more information. Uh, really appreciate y'all having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't you give a little bit of background, uh, I guess, more your history in the Army and, and what you did and then um, how you got into Patriot Family Homes and how you started this business that's now big enough that you're having to sit on the hold with the credit card companies and say, yes, I really am spending that much money. Please, please open my accounts. <laughs> I never thought I'd measure success in how big my monthly credit card bill is, but, uh, you know, <laughs> um, so, uh, no, I was, uh, from a little town in, uh, middle of nowhere in East Tennessee, uh, kind of classic one red light town, uh, went to, uh, college at the University of Virginia, did ROTC there. Um, and uh, when I got out of school, uh, got a scholarship called the Rhodes Scholarship to go over to Oxford and did my master's and uh, doctorate over uh, at Oxford in the UK on uh, U.S. international relations. And my focus was U.S.-China relations and then did kind of training in the summers while I was in the program, came back Um the uh, army actually tried to kick me out. Uh, the chief of staff of the army, General Milley, had to personally get involved to keep me in the army because the army was so confused at why I was going up for the captain's promotion board and like hadn't done all the things that a normal lieutenant would do because of my time over there in Oxford. Um, and uh, but uh, infantry officers and was an infantry platoon leader and uh, came back from a kind of training rotation with that. Went to Ranger School, then after Ranger School, deployed with uh, the 2nd Ranger Battalion over to uh, Afghanistan and there 
met uh, the commander of the task force at the time was a guy named Colonel Pete Shule, uh, who was a mentor of mine and ultimately now came and works for us at Patriot, and as did the plans officer. So it's been a pretty cool kind of, uh, you know, kind of thing for, you know, opportunity for things to come full circle. And so got back from Afghanistan, uh, went to the 101st, uh, then went to Ukraine, was in Ukraine, training their forces over there, and then got called back from Ukraine to go to the White House um, and serve as the director for Indo-Pacific Security. So kind of countering, you know, building our uh, counter China policy for the last 18 months of the Trump administration. And then when the Biden team came in, I was uh, uh, out on day one. And uh, so then I uh, went back to, you know, it's fine with me. Decided to come back home to East Tennessee and uh, got out of moved off active duty um, and into the reserves and have been kind of running the company since then. But we actually started the company while I was deployed in Afghanistan. So my wife traveled kind of Monday through Friday. And, uh, you know, so we didn't need the house uh, and didn't know how long I was going to be deployed. So we just left all the furniture in there, threw it up on Airbnb and HomeAway, quickly realized no surprise, there's a big need for furnished short-term accommodations around military bases with families constantly coming and going. So then got another one and another one, took out my first big loan. That's when the army sent me to Ukraine. I said, well, this is how I go bankrupt because how am I going to manage this operationally intensive, you know, business from a shipping container in rural Ukraine. And then, you know, kind of answered a prayer. One of the guys that I was deploying with his wife had been a West Point grad, been in the army, gotten out, now did real estate, both property management, Renault, and was an agent and was like, look, Kate will take care of things while you're deployed. And that be has become kind of our secret sauce of, you know, awesome military spouses like Rebecca and Kate and a whole host of others that work for us. Um, and uh, yeah, so then we just, you know, I kind of built the company while I was still in the military. So when I left, we already had like 150 or so properties when I left active duty and uh, then just kind of you know kept growing from there. I just want to make sure that I heard you clearly. You went to get a master's and a doctorate in Army China relations and then you joined as an infantry officer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And went to Ukraine. Don't don't forget that. First of all, <laughs> went to Afghanistan, Ukraine, uh, everywhere but anything that I had uh, I'd studied. I mean, it's not a surprise to anybody who listens to this show that the military is not a, always the most efficient use of resources. But I just wanted to kind of that one was kind of glaring to me. So I just wanted to. I mean, the Airbnb well, stuff is cool, too, I suppose. I tried to hide my background from my soldiers for quite a while. Uh because once they found out about it, it was, uh, you know, never ending. <laughs> yeah, well, especially, you know, in 2000 and early 2000s, it would have seemed quite useless. Whereas now it probably seems very useful. <laughs> yes. You bought your first Airbnbs or the short-term rentals. What, what year was that? 2018. Oh. Okay. So right before it, like, it was still, it was popular by then. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I bought it just because uh, my mother-in-law was like, what are you going to do with this house? And I was like, I don't know, not on the top of my list. And she's like, well, you should throw it up on Airbnb. So I was like, okay, whatever, we'll try it out. And uh, then when I came back, my wife loves to tell this story. When we came back, I didn't want to give up the cash flow off the house. So my wife and I moved all of our stuff into one room and we rented out the other two rooms to randos. 
And then we brought this dog when we were in the UK and brought it back. And I was like, this dog's balance sheet's in the red. We got to fix this. So when my wife was gone for work, I bred the dog. Uh, <laughs> and so we then had 10 puppies in our one bedroom of our three bedroom house with two other randos with us. And then after, uh, and then I was like, I was on this kick. And so then my wife didn't use her car, you know, most of the time because she was traveling. Then we used my truck on the weekend. So she came home one Friday and she goes, where's my car? And I said, oh, I leased it. <laughs> And so she said, you're going to learn that not every capital asset in this household has to yield a monthly return. Uh, so from every subsequent house that we've bought, uh, I've been I'm under explicit instructions that I cannot rent out any rooms of the house anymore. And I can't lease her car and I can't breed the dog anymore either. <laughs> um, well, yeah, but you scaled up the business a uh, hundred plus units, you said, and in quite a short amount of time, it sounds like a few years. Yeah. So we, we bought our first one in 2018. Uh, and that was just a couple. And it wasn't really until 2019, in the beginning of 2019, we only had four or five properties. We're about 350 or so now. Well, the question that I think I want to know, and I think everybody else wants to know is how'd you pay for them? So, um, you know, we did a lot of, you know, we'd kind of buy them on a line of credit you know, we started out like literally in, I mean, I had a guy, one of the houses we took, I had a guy charge me and I threw him through the window. You know, I mean, we were like in hypodermic needles, like, you know, complete gut, you know, terrible houses that we basically got for super cheap. And then we did the, a lot of the work ourselves to fix them up. And then based off that experience, we were able to get lines of credit from the bank. <clears throat> and then we would buy stuff on lines of credit, fix them up, roll them off, you know, the classic Burr model. Uh, and then they have really good cash flow. And then, you know, when I ran out of that, then we started doing a rental arbitrage business where we would go in and sign a five-year lease with the property and then turn around and sublease it. And then I could build up a track record and buy it that way. And then in addition to that, we, um, then we had folks start coming to us and say, so, you know, look, I'd, I'd like for you to go buy us 20, 25, you know, go buy me 20, 25 homes. And then we would take an equity stake in the homes as well and then, you know, manage them. So, you know, a mix of kind of bur classic burr, a rental arbitrage followed on by purchasing and then like mini fund model stuff where folks would want us to go buy houses for them and we'd take a stake in the homes. Fascinating. Um, I'm still I'm fairly new to um, Airbnbs, learning a lot. Um, I have one, so not nearly the scale. Some interesting scalability problems with Airbnb, it seems. Um, uh, I don't know if this is just my experience or if it's, or if it's accurate, but I, I see that definitely the people who are trying to get in and make easy money and just like um, treat it like a rental that makes more money aren't doing as well, where, you know, it's hospitality or it definitely seems like it's, it's a hospitality business far more, which doesn't, you know, to me, scaled hospitality is hotels. And so, like, how do you find the balance between, you know, not you don't want to provide a hotel, I don't think um, you want to provide an experience a little bit better than that, I would I would assume. So can you speak to that at all? Yeah. So first of all, short term rentals are definitely not mailbox money. They are not passive income. It's a very operationally intensive version of real estate that you're hit the nail on the head. It is more hospitality than it is traditional real estate and rental. Um, you know, instead of turning a property once every year or two, we turn a property six times a month. Um, so it's just a very, in, you know, all the different 
linen service and cleaning and everything else that goes along with it. So how do you, how do you, how do you scale? I think you have to be very clear about what you are and who you are. So most management companies in this space only want to do luxury properties, right? They want to have the million dollar beach home and they need to achieve a five-star review over and over and over and over. You know, like that's what they do. Um, that's not what we do. We are, we call ourselves the Walmart of short-term rentals, right? Which is, you know, nothing special, standard homes, you know, but a consistent experience, you know, over and over and over again, right? So you're not going to show up and it's like Vegas, you know, pad with, you know, great pool and all these lights and like all the, you know, these homes are designed for, you know, families and, uh, and we do a lot of traveling work crews, like traveling electricians, plumbers, people who are on the, a lot of traveling healthcare, we do a lot of insurance work for insurance, co- you know, folks who've had their house burned down or water damage or whatever else the insurance company has to put them up. So it's when you, we are not what you think of when you think of your traditional Airbnb of a beach home or a mountain vacation home, right? We are in your just kind of, cause we started out all around military bases after we left, Columbus, Georgia, we went to Clarksville, which is, you know, 101st. So we were all around military base. So that's kind of our DNA is the no frills, nothing fancy kind of special stuff. So there, you know, you still have to deliver a lot of things, but we're not putting fresh chocolates and wine bottles and champagne and like, you know, flower petals and all the other stuff out uh, in the homes. I just did that for the first time ever on one of my homes this last weekend because I found out as the guest was coming in that it was actually somebody who worked with someone that in my last command and was like personal friends with like all my old OICs. So I was like, we're going to make sure that if she mentioned she stayed in my house, it's awesome. So it was like Easter cookies and a wine bottle. And like I had the, I had my assistant and one of the other girls in the office. I was like, go make the house look pretty and <laughs> like whatever. Uh, but yeah, I agree. I'm kind of the same. Don't want to do that on all of it. Yeah. It's like the Ray Kroc, you know, like when Ray Kroc went in to meet with these MBA students and, you know, they were asking him a bunch of different questions and who knows whether this is true or not, or if it's just legend, but you know, he's just like any one of you can go home and make a better hamburger than I can. Right. So what makes me special? And that's because we just do it over, you know, a good enough hamburger over and 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 over again. And that may not be in some ways the most inspiration, you know, on the surface of it, people are like, why are you going around bragging that you're the Walmart of short term rentals? It's like, you know, you can hate on Walmart, but a lot of people need Walmart. Right. Walmart's Walmart's the bigger, biggest employer on the planet Earth. Right. So they, they read a lot of they read a lot of paychecks. Yeah. I would imagine 350 Walmart Airbnbs probably beats five luxury Airbnbs when you talk profit. Yeah. <laughs> um, how do you deal with the algorithm? Because it certainly favors five star. It, it favors the fancier. Well, OK. My assumption, what I the little that I know is that it favors the um, the fancier properties. So this is where we say, you know, it's important to be true to who you are. So your your assumption would be correct if you're managing the beach home or the mountain home, right? So let's let's turn it around though. Let's say you're coming to Huntsville, Alabama to go to this take your family to the Space Center. You probably book your trip what 4 or 6 weeks, 8 weeks in advance, you know, sometime in advance. 
You go on to Airbnb, you look for the five-star reviewed properties, you book a two or three-day weekend stay. Now, what has that done? That's prevented a month-long insurance group of electricians, plumbers, whatever else have you. So most people, if they look at their calendar and they have no bookings for the next six weeks, they panic, right? And they throttle their prices down. I look at no bookings for six weeks and I say, great, because there is a group, there is somebody showing up in town that needs three or four bedrooms for the next six or eight weeks. And, you know, we're the only game in town. So that sounds paradoxical, but between, you know, in some, it, it is, it is not uncommon in our strat, you know, strata of the business for lower reviewed properties to outperform higher reviewed properties because of that factor. You're giving me a lot of hope right now for my fairly not that great reviewed property. <laughs> my, <laughs> my four and a four and a half star reviewed property that I'm always uh, stressing about. We across 350 properties, our average review score is about 4.5 and a half, 4.6. That seems so much more well correlated. I, I always have this complaint about the five star or the star method in general, where there's a an aspect of human psychology that some people are just not going to give you the five star rating no matter what. I, they just don't care. And he, here's an interesting thing. You'll see at scale within a given property, it's an oscillating factor, right? Because when you come straight out of the gate, you got the great pictures, everybody books it, and then you get a mix of people who are happy with what you deliver, and then the people who were expecting something different, and they review you low. So then the review score like drops down super low, right? And then the only people willing to book the like 3.8 starred reviewed property have pretty low expectations. So they show up, and they're fine. And so then they start giving it five stars. And then over time, it creeps back up and up and up and up. And then, oh, shit, we're back up in the 4.7 range. And Karen books it, wanting a five, gets there, got a 4.5 that, you know, somehow, you know, other people pushed it to 4.7 when it should have been 4.5. And she's like one. And so now we're back down to the low, <laughs> you know, like, and you see this like constant up and down factor. And I, my guess is while we don't run many luxury, I've talked with some people in luxury and I think you'd find a similar thing even in the luxury, right? You know, the people who really wanted the five star and they push it down to a 4.85 and then, you know, only those people happy with that book it. And then, so then they give it higher views. And it pushes up. So I think that like you just, ba you just benchmark yourself to people's expectations, right? Like we're going to, I feel like we, meet the expectations of people who expect 4.5 star reviews properties as frequently as people who have 4.9 star properties meet their guests' expectations at 4.9. And that's the beauty of the two-sided review system as much as it drives me nuts sometimes and I want to like yell and scream. Uh, it's just, that's the reality of, of what it is. So this is a really, this is a really um, helpful in like insight to me because you know i am i'm under this assumption that everyone you know everyone's striving for the chasing reviews but now that i think about it most of the people i know like the guy that i know that's really successful in airbnbs owns like a dozen of these like really high class do uh quad plexes on carolina beach and they're all you know they're beachfront resort places and they're expensive and they're very nice and he's chasing high star high reviews but he's chasing this vacation customer 
And here I am, I'm doing kind of the same thing you're doing, right? I got seven properties. We're going to convert all of them to Airbnb and they're outside of Fort Bragg. And so I'm not going to get luxury beach resort customers. I'm going to get, um, you know, regular folk. So they, yeah, so I, I, and I, I, look, I like, I don't want to do what you do. I don't want to be the Walmart. I never, I, if I told my, my girlfriend, Miss Kate, that she would freak out. She's like, no, we are not going to do that. We are going to give people magical experiences. And, um, and, and that's fine. Cause that's kind of, uh, built into us and we're a little bit more, um, artsy of a folk, um, as well. So we're going to design our, with some, um, eccentricities, but it does help me to kind of, uh, the psychology of it to be like, okay, you know, you're right. If you get a four and a half star, property it's probably because the fours were impressed and the you know the people that were over expecting were a little under impressed and you went to your average which is and then and like you said that doesn't mean you underperform it just so i guess the next question is like how far down the algorithm do you worry about like you know more and more people are doing this um it, what are the odds that the the five stars the people who are really trying taking smaller margins to do it can, can they beat out the people who are systemizing it too much so i mean the all the data shows that the demand for short-term rentals is going to grow about five or six times while supply maybe will double because there's such a pain i mean they're, they're so difficult to manage right that like we see this all the time people come in i tell people short-term rentals easy on the wallet hard on your emotions and so if you cannot even if you hire a management company right You've got to separate yourself from the emotional roller coaster of these things because people will say terrible things about you. And the more properties you get, just the law of large numbers says the more nasty things that are going to get said and you just can't let it bother you. Um, so but but it does. Right. And then there's also the regulatory piece. So re the regulatory environment, like I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Chattanooga just imposed a moratorium. Right. No more. Now they can't do anything with the ones we already have, but for the time being, you can't add any more short-term rentals. And you've seen, oh, you love that. <laughs> I mean, you've seen Savannah do that. You've seen a lot, of, a lot of these places put on these restrictions. And then what happens is if you own a short-term rental that has a permit and a license, the value of your property goes up 30, 40%, right? Because then if you want a vacation home in that area, the only way you can justify it from an economic standpoint is to then be able to short-term rent it when you're not using it. And so, you know, it's a, uh, I, I don't worry about particularly, particularly in the kind of Walmart market. So Walmart for us means one, the style of properties we're doing, but it also means the markets where we operate. And so you said you're in Fayetteville is where you're going to be doing some. So we've got properties in Fayetteville as well. Uh, happy to compare notes on those, but uh, you know, I, I don't, you know, the big boys are never going to show up in Fayetteville, right? Like the, the like real big Vacasas of the world, because it's just not a big enough market. They're only going to be in the vacation areas and the big cities. And so I think that you'll always in your, you know, military town, you're just going to always have need for, you know, families are coming and going. People are coming in for graduations and everything else. So. And the yeah. value prop is just there, you know, so if you look at it, like, Ultimately, short-term rentals are a value prop on volume vis-a-vis -a, -vis a hotel, right? So it's like if you're traveling by yourself, it's probably just as good a deal to go 
get a hotel, frankly. I mean, I'm an Airbnb owner. If I was going by myself to a random city, I'd just book a La Quinta or a Days in, you know. Um, but when it makes a difference is when you've got a family, a large family that your couple of hotel rooms or a bunch of colleagues traveling together and you start, you know, looking at the difference of one Airbnb versus three or four hotel rooms. Or if you break up that one day and you take that one or two day stay out to like a three, two, three, four weeks stay, then that starts to make a huge difference. So. Yeah, I love all of this. I was, um, I was kind of bearish on Airbnb search and rentals in uh, around 2019. I was like, this, this is overrated. These people are making too much money. And I thought the market would kind of, I thought the regulatory environment would, would crack down much sooner. And I don't know what I thought, I guess, in retrospect, but I was like, I, 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 I looked at it and I said, you know, market equilibrium is going to say that I, if I own a property and I can go long-term rent it and you know, I can make 10% and then you can go short-term rent it and you can make 30 or 40%. I'm like, somebody's just going to come in and undercut you. And, you know, the, the, the market equilibrium will come down to that, that 10, 12% or whatever. And that's not really what happened at all. And I started to notice it. I'm like, oh, I'm wrong. Let me just go buy some of these. Let me convert some of these. And, um, and you know, I, I really flipped my, flipped the, uh, all the way, all the way 180. And now I'm like, I'm really really bullish on Airbnb and the supply problem that you mentioned. It's interesting when I look at Airbnb, they're never advertising towards guests. They're always advertising to, to people who homeowners like put your house on Airbnb. They're trying to get more homes. They're not trying to get more. They're not trying to get more guests. It's a fascinating. They've won the guest game, right? I mean, if you just use, if you look at user, I mean, they, they, they like they are the elephant in the room. They're a, they're the word for short-term rental, right? People don't say short-term rentals. They say Airbnbs. When people are going to Fayetteville, they don't go Google short-term rental in Fayetteville. They go on Airbnb and they look for a property. There are still some, absolutely, there are still some, you know, loyal users of VRBO. And so, you know, we list on Airbnb, VRBO, Booking, Expedia, TripAdvisor, you know, all the different platforms. But the user, I mean, Airbnb is largely one user volume. Now, one reason, you know, there is a lot of pushback from hosts on Airbnb more so than the other sites because Airbnb is the payment record. And so they control, they have more control over the exchange between the guest and host than other platforms where the host, you know, has more control over the process. And so um, that's one reason in my view, why particularly a lot of the vacation markets, people really focus on their direct bookings and their reviews and everything else to try to get repeat guests, pull them off platform and whatever else, you know, our, our view is Airbnb is a great partner, right? And that, you know, they give a million dollar liability and, you know, property coverage policy that we can then take that certificate of insurance to our insurance provider and get our insurance company cut down. They, you know, facilitate, you know, th there are definitely some headaches with them, but, Overall, we're perfectly happy to continue to work with Airbnb. Yeah. And while I've certainly had some really weird experiences, for the most part, their customer service is actually pretty helpful with situations. I mean, there's obviously – there's all the horror stories about something that went wrong with the property and Airbnb was like, deal with it. But I, I've never really run into one of those. Like I've had uh, – I even had an issue once where – you'll appreciate this. I was in California. I – 
was just using a keypad that didn't, it was nothing automatic. It was a keypad to a garage. It was for a bedroom out of a house that I was renting. I was subletting a room out. And like my systems were great in a lot of ways. One flaw was that it, in my messages, sent the password for the gate code. I came home on a Tuesday and the guest who was supposed to check in Wednesday was cooking pancakes in the kitchen. And I was like, uh, your listing starts tomorrow. And he like freaked out and left. And then like, you know, he was like, oh, he like went on Airbnb and tried to leave a bad review and be like, they weren't ready for me. I'm like, uh, no, I, you're right. Like, and Airbnb was just like, delete. You're good. Thanks. We won't, we won't host him again. Um, whereas I've heard of, you know, all these horror stories, but I'm like, well, I've, the one time that it mattered for them to pull a review down, they were fine with it. Cause I was like, they showed up before the, all right, whatever. And so. I've never really had like my customer service experience with them has actually been really good. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, we're, we couldn't run our business without Airbnb. Right. So are there, are there things that I would love to change? Of course, there's things I'd love to change with our property management software with our other plat, you know, there's always things you'd love to change, but, um, you know, uh, overall I, you know, I, we're very lucky to have them. So, uh, are you still in the military or you're, you're all the way out? I'm in the reserve still. Yeah. How much did this a thriving enterprise, I mean, how much was that a factor of getting out? You're like, okay, I can stay in as a captain and make captain money in Afghanistan and Ukraine, or I can get out and make 350 Airbnb property management money. <laughs> I hear Ukraine is great this time of year right now. Wonderful place to hang out. You know, I, I always kind of had an idea that I would get out. You know, I wanted to do the army for, you know, for a while and, and loved it. I mean, I'm still in the reserves. And, you know, if uh, if something kicked off with China or whatever else, that's why I'm kind of hanging around to, to see. But, you know, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty focused on building the business. And, um, you know, I, I think that was obviously a huge factor in me deciding to get out. I, I was also on such a, by the time between Oxford and then the White House, I was on such a non-traditional path that I was, you know, I was not going to last. <laughs> so. Yeah. So you go from Oxford, White House, and then you went to infantry. Yeah, I can't. I, I was in um, third SF group for my first like 18, tw- two years, like that 18 months, two years. And then they tried to put me in a regular unit. They did put me in a regular unit, and by that time, I was like, "This, I've, I've already have. A, it's less exciting. I'm getting out." <laughs> thanks, thanks, boys. Tell me what. So I'm looking on the website right now, so I've been cruising over here for a minute, uh, and so I see you guys do management. You'll help people with management. People can lease their home to you, so you do the rental arbitrage, management support, temporary relocation housing listed as your services. Walk me through what like services Patriot Family Homes provides, and then as Alex asked. What, where's it going? Yeah. So we, um, you know, if you want to lease your you know, lease homes to us, you know, we'll sign three or five year leases and then turn around and we'll put the furniture in them and then we'll run them as short term rentals. So if, if you just want predictable, reliable, no risk, no upfront capital to buy all the furniture, you deal with it, send me my check each month and then I don't even have to worry about finding a new tenant for the next five years. Great. Um, if what you say is, look, uh, I'd actually like to participate in the upside and willing to take a little bit of risk. And so I'll pay for the furniture to put in the home and then, you, you know, pay you all to manage it for me. Great. We'll do that. Uh, 
Um, and so those are our kind of two. And then, and then we have a digital package. We have a, on the management side, we have a full service package where we do everything. And then we have a digital package. Um, so, you know, we aren't, we're not operating up in Anchorage, Alaska. So if you called and asked, said, Hey, can you lease my home in Anchorage or can you do a full service management package in Anchorage? We would say, no, we can't do that, but we will do the digital only package basically anywhere. So if you say, Hey, I've got this home, I'm willing to get it set up, you know, get it set up. We'll send you a list of everything that needs to go in the home. And then I'll find the cleaner and the maintenance guy and the, you know, lawn care and whatever else. And I just want you all to do pricing, guest messaging, guest engagement, all of that different stuff on the kind of digital side, then we'll do that anywhere because we don't need to have a physical presence. Uh, so those are your kind of three things that we offer to your kind of more retail style. You know, you've got a couple homes. And then increasingly what we're doing is working with larger, you know, buyers, um, you know, potentially to include some institutional players that are looking to put not just a couple, you know, but looking to put 20, 50 million plus in equity to work. And so then for them, we put together a fully vertically integrated, you know, process. We go out and find the properties, underwrite them, acquire them, oversee the reno, manage them, furnish them, the whole nine yards. That's a lot of transactions, bro. 20 million of single family homes is you got, it's a whole other, there's another scalability problem, but not a hospitality of, of transaction. I mean, it could be one home in LA. Yeah. They're really, they're really expensive. Uh, It's really a lot of transaction volume when you're doing it in Fayetteville and Montgomery, Alabama, and you know, all the places where we run. So uh, yeah. And that, and that's to be clear, that's, you know, $75 million worth of homes, right? Cause it's, 25 million in equity levered up to 75 million. Uh, and that would be like, you know, one account. Um, so that's wild. I mean, you're right, Alex, that's like buying like four neighborhoods in a town and going, all right, guys, furnish them, have fun. (laughs) I wish, I wish it was all that geographically consolidated because that would be way easier. Uh, but no, we'll do some build to rent. Uh, we've already done some build to rent, uh, build the short term rent in this instance. Um, we bought some bankrupt timeshares. So time, these timeshares, as they come up on their 40 year sunset, nobody wants to do timeshares anymore. So they'll sell them at auction and we'll go in and buy the thing for pretty cheap and then convert them all to short term rentals because they're already effectively short term rentals just in a different ownership structure. Um, and then, uh, yeah, but I mean, you know, this the institutional buying space is a, a friend and mentor of mine. You know they've bought three billion worth of homes in the past. You know six eight years uh, they're buying hundreds of millions of dollars worth of homes a quarter. Here I thought I was doing all right. This is why they those motivational speakers tell you to compare yourself to you last year and not to the guy who just bought three billion dollars worth of well, homes. Well, if I if I compared myself to last year, I'd be like, what happened to this extra fifteen pounds that I put on? <laughs> so I tell people I'm an events based athlete with no upcoming events. So uh, so okay. So here's the question for you, and almost hypothetically asking, there's definitely some non hypothetical in here, but if you're a guy like me. So I'm not on your market right now. You don't have anything in Springfield, Missouri. But 
if I was like, wow, I got this awesome house that I've been torn between Airbnb or selling, I'm flipping it right now. I'm renovating it. And I think it'd make a killing either way I go. Do you guys, if I reached out and was like, wow, hey, if you guys want to lease this house for five years, like, do you, are you branching into other markets or would it just be like, eh, well, and what does that process look like? And I'm curious because I'm sure that there were a lot of ears that perked up from landlords that were like five-year tenant. Okay, that's pretty sweet given nobody knows what the next five years is going to look like in the real estate world. Uh, like, what does that process look like? So for us to go to a new market, it either needs to be on our patch chart that we're trying to get there. Or we need to somebody to be able to bring us ten homes with a pathway to twenty, uh, is what we is what we say. So, a leader of five homes within ten homes in three to six months, and within twenty homes within twelve months, right? So that would be kind of, you know. So if, if you called up and said, "I got one house in Springfield," we'd say, "Happy to do digital management for you," right? If you said, "I've got five now, I can get you ten in the next three to four months, and then I can get you 20 in the next, you know, year, then, all right, let's go make the investment, send the corporate staff, you know, corporate team out there, build a ground game, all of that good stuff. What kind of, when you talk lease, like, and obviously I'm not asking you to give away the secret sauce, but I would imagine if you're doing a five-year lease, you're probably not paying long-term market. Are you paying like whatever the market is for like a long-term rental? Do you guys pay a little bit of a premium for that? How does that kind of play out? I'm trying to fish out and get you some leads here. Yeah, no, we will um, We will often pay a little bit of premium on what market rent is. I mean, not crazy. And again, a lot of it depends on, is this a market we're really wanting to go into? So we're willing to pay a little bit more because we've got our own reasons for wanting to go in there versus, you know, is this a market that, you know, is on the, two, three, five year timeline, then less, uh, less motivated to pay above market rent. And, and it also depends on the type of property, right? So like we'll underwrite the property and we, we have the analogy I give people, we've got like, we've got houses in Birmingham where I'll pay a thousand bucks a month, the rent and make 3,500 on the short term side. So my Delta is 2,500. Then I can go get a $2,000 rent house and do like $7,000 a month. So then I've got like 5K Delta where I can go get, we've got this like awesome house that's like $3,600 a month in rent. And it does like 12K plus a month as a short-term rental, right? So then you've got, so like, you know, if you've got the thousand dollar house and you want to push me from a thousand to twelve hundred, nah, it starts to it starts to you know the premium's not worth it because we we say we want at least twenty five hundred dollars delta between the long term rate and the short term rate for it to make sense for us. By the time we pay utilities, pay all the cleaning fees, pay the platform fees, pay the credit card processing, we account for our overhead, and then we amortize out the furniture. You know, we need about it. You know that. On a on a rental arbitrage property because we're getting no appreciation in the property itself, right? It's purely cash flow, so we want to be able to fully repay our upfront investment in the first twelve months. And if we can't do that, then it's really not worth the worth the effort. Yeah. Again, uh, back to kind of my original comment about like Airbnb and 
long-term rentals are vastly different business models. I mean, it is a much more capital, it's a much more operations intensive business. And so somebody might say $2,500 spread, like that's so much. And it's like, yeah, wait till you have cleaners and lawn care and pest control and, you know, somebody answering the phones. And I mean, it's just internet, it's, it's operational, you know, the air conditioning bill goes up. Um, it, it's a operationally and capital, much more capital intensive um, business. So when I first started, you know, on my little one, I was like, dude, the gross income skyrocketed against against long term rental, but the net income did not skyrocket because it's just it's it's a lot more it's a lot more work it's a lot more overhead. The the highest and best use of every property is not as an Airbnb, right? Like that's what you have to understand is that you know the highest and best use for a lot of properties is a long term rental. Um, so. Yeah, this one I mentioned, I'm I'm leaning towards if I don't just sell it, which I might do. But it's it's a great location. So I love the location. I love the property itself. It's just, you know, when you're going to make close to six figures potentially on the sale, it gets really tempting to just say, okay, um, vice, a couple hundred bucks a month in cash flow or whatever. But I've been looking at the, you know, mid midterm rentals or student rentals because it's close enough to the downtown to the college and downtown that I think that would work. So I'm actually meeting with someone this week. But uh, you're right. Like we ran the numbers as an Airbnb. And I mean it I thought it was going to be amazing. And they were not much better than the house that I'm in right now, which I mean, don't get me wrong, still better than I'd get in long term rent. But I was like, eh, it's not as much of a killing as I thought it would be. So yeah. Your houses that really kill it on Airbnb or anything that's got like a mother-in-law suite or a casita in the back or something like that, duplex, because then you don't just have two listings. You've got three. You've got the big house, the small house, the two combined. Uh, if you've got a house that has a pool, then the delta between what it'll do as a long-term and a short-term bumps up substantially. If you've got a house that's in a bad school district, that's another you know, thing that'll push a short-term rent or higher, right? Because it's harder to get the premium long-term rents because people care about the school district. You know, if you got a house next Dude, to I got a house that I'm, I'm staying in it right now. It was like my worst, it was my worst property at one point in the area that I live in really, really revitalized. And some of my complaints about this property is it's like, it's kind of on a road that you really don't want to live on uh, traffic wise. Like the neighborhood's okay. It's just like it's sort of a main road. It became a main road. It became more popular. And it's like, it's fine for three days. It's like, say that again. We look, we, we, we actively look for busy. Like, so your big institutional buyers have very tight buy boxes, right? And so they, one of their buy box criteria for a lot of them is no double yellow lines, which is an indicator of how busy the street is, right? We love double yellow lines, right? No one cares. Exactly what you said. No one cares about the street. We love things that are across from schools, churches, commercial, industrial, anything that borders, Something like that, you know, because there's then fewer fewer neighbor issues, and so yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting changing. It's I mean the culture is changing before our eyes in a very interesting way because you know Kate always says to me she's like nobody's ever going to live in this house again, and it kind of takes me a second. It takes me back every once in a while. This one particular we're about to convert, and it takes me a second to like think about that because that's not what houses were built for. You know, they're always built for either living in it or or a long-term tenant and now you have this kind of a new thing where um which seems to be quite permanent and it really changes the makeup of what makes for a desirable house and so 
you know, I'm just saying the same thing you just said again, actually. But um, it is interesting. This one's right down the street. From, it's right down the street from a school. It's right down the street from all the stuff. Like it's a big. Um, they're building a lot down there. It's not super walkable, and so like I don't really like living here. But it's perfect for three days. It's perfect for a week or two. I could not get none of this stuff bothers me until you get here for a while. Uh, octagon houses. We've got a weird number of octagon houses and like crazy ranches that just rooms for days that don't make any sense. Right. Like no one cares. Right. Like, in fact, the octagon houses, people are like, that's pretty cool. I've never stayed in an octagon house. I'd like to do it for a couple of days. No one wants to live in that all the time. <laughs> you know, um, so. Yeah, I, we've been painting this house kind of, um, I told you we're a little bit eccentric and artistic. And uh, so we're painting the house kind of like ridiculous colors and stuff. Um, purple door behind me. And and she's like, so what? Like somebody will come in and be like, I'm going to go stay in the, the purple door house for a few days because I never want to live there. But it'd be fun to go take a picture of it and visit it. Doesn't make any difference to me to go visit. And so there's definitely a, a really interesting dynamic in what makes for an attractive short-term uh, short-term stay is, is it's different especially in the nuance it's much different than what makes for a, vi a valuable long-term stay yeah the the house i'm in so i'm in i'm in the in-law suite it's a basement that they finished out and it's a two one with a living room and a you know kitchen bathroom whatever the upstairs is a four two and a half but it's <clears throat> I won't say it's like a wonky layout, but the house looks like it was built for entertaining. So it has like a massive den with a fireplace that's like, you know, 40 feet one end to the other and whatever, big vaulted windows and all this and like tri-level and it's got a big awning and, and deck out back that's covered that overlooks, you know, it, it's great from an Airbnb standpoint or if you want to have events or if you want to have guests or you want to entertain or whatever, but it was a really wonky layout for homeowners. And so even in the height of all the seller's market, this thing was sitting on the market for uh, you know, 45 days while in a neighborhood that's very desirable and everything else is on the market for like less than a week. And so we were able to come in, get a little bit of a discount, whatever, but it works great for Airbnb. I do 10 to 12 guests and people love it. Uh, now, granted, the whole entertaining thing, I've had a rager or two, but, you know, it, it happens. You know, you only have to pick up black feathers every once in a while off the everything um, and bong stains and it's kind of a weird one. But uh, but for the most part, it's great. But the cool thing, like what you just said, I never thought of when I take my office out of here and move to an actual office, uh, I can rent the downstairs as a separate unit, which I had thought of, or as a long term unit, which I had thought of. But I hadn't thought of doing it to where you could also rent both. That's cool. Multiple points on the demand curve, and by doing that, you're allowed. You can push your ADR without taking a huge hit on your occupancy. And that's what we say. Just the space in general is like short-term rental space is where the long-term rental industry was 12, 14, 15 years ago, right? Just in terms of how fragmented and undisciplined it is. Um, and so, we take over properties all the time and push their revenue, not because we do anything special, but just because we've gotten pretty good at revenue management and we'll push their revenue up 30, 35% just by using, you know, a lot of the different best practices and stuff that we have and thinking through things like how you do duplicate, you know, how do you do A, B, A, B, and C together and make sure you sync up the calendar so you don't have double bookings and, um, and how you run different promos and stuff like that. So yeah, there's a ton of opportunities. I mean, I think, you know, for, 
for the folks out there who are, you know, I would break, you know, most assuming that, you know, most of your audience has some sort of military background. I kind of say, you know, bucket folks in a couple different categories. You know, you're a young Joe who's like, uh, you know, who's got a, got a place and you're deploying or going to training or you're moving across the country and you're like, I don't want to take all this junk with me. You can leave it behind. And so that the biggest capital expense of starting a short term rental vis-a-vis a house is the furniture, right? If you've already got all the furniture in there, you're like, all right, I'm going to PCS and I don't want to move all my stuff again. Then you can leave it and leave it in your house, your apartment, whatever else, and turn it into short term rental. If you're going out on a six month, you know, two month training, whatever, you know, like you can break these up and get cash flow from the unit when you're not using it. Um, and then the second group is your kind of, you know, retirees who now have like a vacation homes and whatever else. And so it's like, you know, a way to leverage that or, and then the third kind of group are these people who've just, you know, PCS all around, you know, and they've bought a house each time they went and then they've converted it to a long-term rental and they now have this large portfolio, but kind of spread across the country of properties. And, and that's the kind of third group. So you know, I think there's a lot of different use cases, but back to the main point, you have to be completely honest with yourself of like, do I want passive income or do I want active income? And if you want passive income, you either cannot do long-term, you can't, can't do short-term rentals or you have to hire somebody to do it for you because it, it will not be passive. All right. So who is... <clears throat> trying to think of how to ask this like who's your target demographic like when you're you come on this podcast obviously we're we're a no pitch podcast but uh like who's your ideal customer if you're not so obviously you're looking for homes to lease uh and you've got some investments and stuff but as patriot family homes just curious what the what you're like i guess what you're looking for right now and and how our audience might be able to help you guys out yeah i mean if we land a couple of these big deals that we're fairly close on, the number one thing we're going to be looking for is people, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so we do this skill bridge program with folks. We love taking interns in and then, you know, several of them have gone on to be kind of VP level folks in the company now. So, you know, if, uh, you know, if you're getting out of the military and you're trying to figure out something to do, you know, we're needed people. So, um, Paradoxically, that's what I would say. You know, that that's actually what I would say is in many ways what we're and we love, we are very proud that we're veteran owned and operated. And, you know, uh with with the huge uh uh caveat that actually most of our employees are military spouses. So uh which we think are just an awesome group of uh, of folks. And I find that the military spouses are actually more innovative than the veterans themselves sometimes. You know, like the problem with military guys when we hire them is particularly they've been in the military for a long time, they see a problem and they need more people. And I'm like, we see a problem, we need a better process because in the military salary, you know, you don't have to absorb the cost, labor cost. You know, we have heavy labor cost uh, for, you know, finding more people. So, um, so yeah, if you're military, if you're in the service, you're not getting out, your wife would like to, you know, or, or husband, Sorry, not to be, you know, you, you got a spouse that would like to, you know, uh, something to do. We're always looking for more people. If you're getting out, want to try a skill bridge internship, see if it's a good fit for a job, love to work with you. Um, but then on the on the property side, 
Um, you know, we'd love to, you know, if, if people have stuff, we'd love for them to reach out and we'll be pretty candid. You know, if it's in a market where we already have up and running, sure, let's go. Uh, if it's in a market where we don't have anything going, uh, then we can do the digital only. Um, so, and, and we can give a pretty quick read on that. Um, and then, you know, certainly if you've got, you know, if you're kind of looking to get into what we call these separately managed accounts, which is a couple million dollars in equity to kind of, you know, do that, then we can kind of help build out a full structure for you. Um, so that's, those are the kind of groups of folks I'd say. If we got anyone listening to this who has $25 million, they need to stuff into $75 million of Airbnbs. I hope you email me too. Just saying. Alex as well. We can we can all help you out. <laughs> uh, all right. We, we, we absolutely love to work with, you know, folks who've got a couple houses uh, on either the arbitrage or the management model. Um, we've just got to make sure they're either in a market where we're operating or it's on the patch chart or we do the digital only package so we don't oversell and under deliver on what we can actually, you know, provide for them on the ground. Easy. Joe, where's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Just go to patriotfamilyhomes.com. Uh, there's a submission form to send in stuff. Uh, it goes uh, to our kind of central team and they'll then push it out based off what you're interested in. Or you can always send an email to info at patriotfamilyhomes.com and uh, they'll take it. And if you want to send something directly to me, uh, it's just Joseph or Joe, either one at PatriotFamilyHomes.com. This is great. I love when we have podcast guests that I can selfishly learn something that I need at your expense. I love it. This is great. <laughs> um, oh, please go ahead. Oh, no, no. I was just going to say I, I, I had a lot of fun. Um, very rarely do I get on with podcast hosts, particularly in the real estate space, and they have any idea what's going on with the short-term rental world, right? Like we have to start back from square one. And so to jump in with two guys who already operating and know the ropes, I think the, the questioning was like way more focused to what I think folks need. I was going to say operating might be a stretch and I'm a dabbler, but your Alex is right. We're incredible. Dude, I am on so many podcasts as a guest and almost something like 90% of podcast hosts that I'm, that I, that I go on, they are dead inside because they hate it. The only reason why they're doing their podcast is for SEO as a funnel to make money. And I am proud, not that proud, a little tiny little bit proud to say that David and I don't make any money for this. We just do it because we enjoy it. And we like to talk to people with incredible stories. And we get a little bit of, like I said, selfish benefit from it. And so because we enjoy it, because we kind of, you know, set our standards like really tight, like, hey, look, we're just not doing interviews that we hate we only talk to people that we think we're going to enjoy and talk to so we can provide good commentary and good conversation um and i don't know how serious your comment was or how frivolous was but i'm taking it very seriously so we are the best that's what i heard you say and i, I appreciate it <laughs> for all of those listening to alex talk about how we don't make any money with this podcast if you uh want a podcast to sponsor we are open to changing that for the right sponsorships so <laughs> yeah, we are looking to sell out. So re please let us know. <laughs> uh, you got some great beards going on. So there could be definitely some hair product. Uh, you know, I, I tried to grow. A, I, I grew a beard, but it came in like four different colors. And my wife was like, cut that. 
dude david david had this mustache um for a long time in fact his picture his all his profile pictures still have the mustache and he gets out of the military and i'm like dude and i'm like dude you gotta this is this is barely acceptable the only reason why it's okay is because you're in the military and you can't grow a beard but now is the time and he shows that he whips out we're in uh, orlando hanging out with a bunch of uh, military millionaire guys and he whips out this picture of him like, oh, I had a beard once. Like, look at it. This and I'm like, that guy looks like your better looking brother. You need to grow that thing out. And so now look, you, you gave him a compliment. Now, another thing that I'm right about is a great day. I like how Alex takes the credit for the beard. Like I wasn't mid growth when he told me that working on it. It was like three weeks after I got out of the. No, it was the week I EAS. I flew from picking up my DD214 to Orlando and I hadn't shaved since. And Alex is like you should grow a beard. I'm like, that's what I'm working on. And now he's like, ah, see, I was right. (laughs) I can't hear you. You're breaking up. Oh my gosh. Joe, this was a blast. If there's anything we can ever do to help you out, let us know. All right. Appreciate it. Yeah, much appreciated. Thank you for listening to another episode about my journey from military to millionaire. If you liked it, be sure to visit from military to millionaire.com slash podcast to subscribe to future podcasts. While you're there, we'd love for you to rate the show, give us a review on iTunes, now get out there and take action.